Happy Friday. I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important, Not Important, science for people who give a shit. The newsletter features the most important science news, how to think about it, and what the hell you can do about it. Hit subscribe right now so you get this audio newsletter every Friday, plus our conversations with the smartest people in the world on Mondays. You can find the digital version and links to everything at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com or write in your show notes. And of course, you can now join our community and support our work by becoming a member. Work along some truly incredible people like, oh shit, people on the front lines of the future. You can join monthly live Ask Me Anythings with myself and some awesome special guests, plus other events. Get exclusive special reports and quarterly updates on any. Get exclusive first looks at any driven investment opportunities across Boy, climate tech, health tech, biotech, and other shit I'm into. And of course, get invitations to share your work with a truly amazing group of folks. Participate in working groups, panels, all that stuff. You can do all of that at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com or the link in the show notes and help make sure our work continues. It is Friday, April 29th, 2022, somehow. And here is your news. This week in climate change, Uh, Wind power is growing dramatically, but the supply chain and business models are facing headwinds. Uh, Now you know how today's puns and metaphors are going to go. So last week I covered the battery supply chain challenges, and this week I'll try to help you understand what's next for wind from the top down. So let's understand it. U.S. President Joe Biden once pledged to cut U.S. emissions in half by 2030, committing a whole-of-government approach to doing so. It feels like 10,000 years ago, and that's mostly thanks to two centrist U.S. senators who refused to listen to their own constituents, and now a war in Ukraine, and those plans have all but failed, despite even big business pushing for clean energy. So with a November election down the pipe, it may at mass, at best, eliminate any hope of us getting close to cutting those in half. So however it's commonly framed, though, what's important to understand is progress isn't black or white, and neither are the climate impacts we're already starting to suffer. They should both be measured in a matter of degrees. Onshore wind is booming in windy, deep red Republican states like Oklahoma uh, or Texas, and for a single day last month generated more power than coal or nuclear. Offshore, Half a million acres in the U.S. are newly available, but it's going to take years for those to become fully operational. The bipartisan, actually, seriously, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, if you know, released plans to modernize the U.S.'s grid and the high voltage lines needed to whip clean power, like the 30 gigawatts of new solar greenlit on federal lands across the country. But here's the rub. Wind plants require huge volumes of resources like concrete, which isn't cleanly produced yet, and far more materials in solar. And the increasingly enormous blades require composite materials that aren't actually that easy to recycle. So let's put it all together. You've got unprecedented demand with a ticking clock that's not great, unpredictable and highly politicized permits and markets and subsidies, and hugely expensive materials in constant need of upgrade. And so suddenly you've got wind power production titans with negative margins in an industry that's virtually required to succeed. And folks, again, with the puns, that's not sustainable. 
So here's your action step. We're getting dangerously close to U.S. Congress reverting to election mode because it's apparently May this weekend. So it's more important than ever that we get those folks to enact literally fucking anything energy related. So make yourself heard by joining the Climate Change Makers next hour of action on Wednesday, May 4th at the link right in your show notes. Here's your COVID news. Your vaccine equity update just 15.3% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose, and 34.8% of people worldwide have received zero doses of a COVID vaccine. So let's talk about kid shots today. As a dad, one of the finest lines I try to walk is, well, Timmy might have actually broken his arm this time falling off the couch, and shake it off, champ. Two years in, and with one recent study showing 60% of Americans and 75% of kids have already been infected by COVID at some point, we know that COVID is less likely to make young children sick compared to older kids, adults, and of course, the elderly. But that doesn't mean they don't get sick, especially now that we're on Omicron Part 12. And it doesn't mean parents of children under five should just keep waiting patiently for vaccines that seem, one, according to the data, fine, and two, to be increasingly held up by some inexplicable bureaucracy. So last week, Politico, I know, reported the FDA might delay Moderna's under-5 authorization until Pfizer finishes their own trials because it would be, and I quote here, simpler and less confusing to simultaneously authorize and promote two vaccines to the public rather than greenlighting one on a faster timetable and the other down the road. Look. One of the most challenging and challenged tenets of public health over the past couple years or decades has been a lack of trust in people to understand what they need to do to stay safe, especially when they're already interested in doing so. Parents who want to vaccinate their kids have proven over the past decades that they're going to do so unless the vaccines will harm their children or measurably don't work. And even with the latter may take some benefit over no benefit. I mean, look at the flu vaccine, right? Now add in the fact that millions of people around us are dead. So these incredible mRNA vaccines, for example, have seemingly created this problematic set of expectations among health officials and people. When successive variants, and we've had so many to date, when successive variants diminish the two-shot vaccine's original and truly otherworldly 90 to 95% reduction in risk for COVID-19-associated death, or when those variants carry more breakthrough potential, like the Omicron variants have, institutions might suddenly believe that new versions aren't worth rolling out at all because the public might be confused because they're not good enough or sad that they're not good enough or they won't take them. So, look, on the one hand, we've vaccinated hundreds of millions of American citizens. And on the other, less than half of eligible kids aged 5 to 11 have gotten a dose. And we've done a really, really shitty job getting adults to get boosters, despite evidence of how well they work. But something is better than nothing. That applies thematically to everything we talk about here. If the shots don't work, they don't work. But according to health officials, that's not what the holdup is. So just be transparent, communicate effectively, cohesively, and let parents protect their kids. Let people take what they can get. So say it with me again. Real-world effectiveness is a spectrum measured in a matter of degrees, just like 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius are two potential outcomes for 
global warming, but in between, there's a lot of wiggle room. So these shots still reduce transmission, even if less than before. They still, so many variants later, and months after boosters, hold the line better than a lot of other vaccines we've got against hospitalization and death. They build antibodies and T-cells, and they might even prevent long COVID. Collectively, when we all get them, they build public immunity. They let kids go back to school and adults go back to work. And not unlike, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, Give Directly's model of reducing poverty, which is to just give people cash, these shots give people agency in so many ways. They often literally give people life. So instead of trying to direct behavior, public health officials should do what they do best, transparently build safe and effective tools, and then equip people with those tools and clear, constructive information so the maximum number of people protect themselves and one another. Your action step is pretty simple because it's still going on out there. You can still order free COVID tests from the government website. Please do that. In food and water news, from farm to table, an estimated one-third of all the food we make on Earth goes to waste. Per the World Wildlife Fund, wasted food generates 32.6 million cars worth of greenhouse gas emissions, and that's mostly methane. So, some of my favorite podcast conversations we've had have helped me truly understand and attack food waste, whether it's with appeal or food forward. And with inflation and war and food security on the rise in the U.S. and across the world, it goes without saying that we can do better, better up and down the food supply chain. So from Food Tank this week, legislation sponsored by Senators Pat Toomey, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Richard Blumenthal, who's a Democrat from Connecticut, the Food Donation Improvement Act aims to strengthen protections for businesses that have excess food but fear liability. It will also expand tax deductions to further incentivize food donations. So a number of companies are pushing this, including Grubhub and two dozen other companies and nonprofits who recently released an open letter pushing Congress to pass the act. So what's next on this front? What else is going on? Congress has introduced the Zero Food Waste Act, the Compost Act, and again, the aforementioned Food Donation Improvement Act. None have passed yet, but we're not just talking about the federal level here. Some municipalities, uh, like New York, are trying to make composting mandatory, but it's complicated and not cheap. A lot of startups are on the case, like Green Pod Labs in India, Fresh Flow in Berlin, and of course, Appeal in the U.S., and they're branching out everywhere. But we're not there yet. But what's important to understand here, and, and again, because we always talk about systemic problems, the kitchen sink approach is always going to be the most effective. And I know when we're talking about the kitchen sink approach and food waste, it feels like I'm just using another metaphor, and I am, and you're welcome. So here's your action step. Uh, Refed, R-E-F-E-D, is an excellent resource uh, for U.S.-based policy and also investment tracking. So check it out and you can compare, discover, and also compare what your locality is doing, if anything, versus others. In health and biology news, truly fantastic fucking news. A massive win for black lungs. This week, the FDA finally announced plans to ban menthol cigarettes. The ban will predominantly affect the 85% of black smokers who smoke menthols, including black men who have the highest rates of lung cancer in the U.S., to the tune of 40,000 black deaths a year. So Canada actually made this move a few years back to ban menthols, and it's been wildly effective at reducing smoking-related disease and death further than the cuts we've already made. 
So, of course, understand, this isn't law yet. Tobacco companies will protest the ban in court because fuck those guys. But a growing number of groups, including recently Gen Z, have been fighting for this ban for decades. So they're not going to let up now when we're at the finish line. Here's a question. Will there be an eerily familiar rough transition from a product that fueled worker productivity and economies but ended up making a small group of folks obscenely wealthy and a bunch of others sick? Yeah, of course. Uh, The entire point of menthol flavoring is to make smoking feel less shitty, right? But smoking shouldn't actually feel less shitty. It should feel exactly as shitty as the harm it does to you, so you're more aware of that harm and thus more likely to understand and hold responsible the system and companies designed to make you sick for profit. So this ban is a big, big, big deal. Your action step is the public, you, can comment on the proposed rules beginning May 4th next week, and there will be public listening sessions on June 13th and 15th. But also, if you've got a smoker in your life, or if it's you, there's so many resources out there now, but smokers interested in quitting can visit smokefree.gov, or they can call 1-800-QUIT-NOW to learn about cessation services available in their state. In beep boop news, America's got a new first AI chief, which could go sideways, but it also could be great. The Pentagon named a new chief digital and artificial intelligence officer to oversee the quote-unquote adoption of data, analytics, digital solutions, and AI functions. Uh, Dr. Craig Martell, a graduate of UPenn, comes on over from machine learning posts at Lyft and Dropbox, among others. From the press release, Advances in AI and machine learning are critical to delivering the capabilities we need to address key challenges both today and into the future, said Deputy Secretary of Defense Dr. Kathleen H. Hicks. Uh, With Craig's appointment, we hope to see the department increase the speed at which we develop and field advances in AI, data analytics, and machine learning technology. He brings cutting-edge industry experience to apply to our unique mission set. So here's how to understand the context of why we need this and and where we're going and what's missing. So when Obamacare launched dead on arrival, the Obama administration scrambled to bring in sort of this who's who of Silicon Valley folks to fix it. So some of that crew stuck it out and became the mythical United States Digital Service, a new, at the time, internal startup tasked with modernizing literally everything they could inside the federal government. That service somehow survived uh, the Trump era, but so did this growing enormous gulf between the private sector, work environment, and government institutions. So in government, the tech sucks, but so does the pay. And what's interesting is that's not the way it always was. Government work used to be illustrious. But for decades now, our best and brightest have been lured by huge option pools and extravagant bonuses to build ad tech or to run your 30-year mortgage through a pile of cocaine and derivative schemes at Goldman Sachs. Government can't work better until it's a better place to work, right? And a new digital service academy, like a cyber academy to rival those in Annapolis, uh, West Point, and Colorado Springs, an academy that pays well that offers a pension that imbues graduates who can't afford to go to Wharton uh, with not only technical skills, but leadership ones, and imbues them with a fondness for country that doesn't emphasize storming the capital, all of that could elevate America's artificial intelligence game just when we need it the most. So 
you can actually be part of the solution. We have so many amazing uh, tech workers of a huge variety of, of skills and responsibilities out there. Um, you can read about and apply actually to the U.S. Digital Service at the link in your show notes or in the newsletter. So finally, 10 things from my notebook. Ed Yong wrote about a frankly terrifying news study from Nature about how climate change and viruses uh, like SARS-CoV-2, which of course uh, can cause COVID, how we're just in the beginning of these interactions. Uh, you should really understand that. We wrote about the six COVID mysteries that are left uh, to solve that we're really trying to understand. Millions of vaccine doses are going to waste in the U.S. and India because we're just not using them. Really interesting story about how Paxlovid came to be, the Pfizer pill to help uh, you when you get sick. California is finally raising flood insurance rates. The uh, question is, will the rest of the country finally follow? Um, this one's just wild. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis actually saved uh, solar in the Sunshine State, and I don't know how to respond to that. Um, U.S. public forests are getting in on the carbon offset game, which truly has to stop. It's a house of cards. California's water restrictions are getting more draconian, and boy, they've got a long way to go there. Looks like wearables can actually track COVID progression, but of course, they're expensive, so they're not distributed equitably. And lastly, do you know the new suicide hotline number? Guess what? It's 988 and I would love if you spread the word because you never know what's going on with folks. So I hope you found some value in this week's issue. I learn so much from the research, but also from being forced to write about it. Uh, the context switching is frankly exhausting, uh, but incredibly illuminating. So hit subscribe now uh, so you get next week's news and analysis straight to your feed. To go deeper on anything or to get your action steps, you can go to newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Thanks as always for being a part of a community and thanks for giving a shit. Have an awesome weekend. Mm -hmm.